Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I am your host, Crawford Gribben, and today my guest is Harrison Perkins. Harrison is a pastor in London City Presbyterian Church and teaches systematic theology at Edinburgh Theological Seminary. We're talking to Harrison today about his new book, Catholicity and the Covenant of Works, James Usher and the Reformed Tradition, just published by Oxford University Press. Harrison, congratulations on the book and welcome to the show. Thanks. It's a real privilege to get to be with you. I'm glad to do it. It's great to have you here. Before we talk about the book, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I'd be glad to. Yeah, so like you said, I am a pastor at London City Presbyterian Church. So that is my first calling, I suppose, uh, where I get to, to preach and help shepherd God's people there. And then I also do some lecturing uh, occasionally on side as a visiting lecturer at Edinburgh Seminary. Uh, so those are the things that I do. I'm married to Sarah. We live here in London. Uh, I'm, I'm American by birth, so I love Southern barbecue. Uh, yeah, and those are some of the not very interesting, but most interesting things about me. That's great. Well, tell us a little bit more about the background to this book and how you came to be interested in James Usher. Yeah, so the book has a an interesting story in, in some ways. So uh, for my birthday one year, I got a copy of James Usher's Body of Divinity. And uh, I was in seminary. I was studying at Westminster, California. And uh, so I decided for one of my classes the, uh, on the history of covenant theology that R. Scott Clark was teaching that I would make myself read this book by writing a paper uh, on it. And so I started exploring some of Usher's covenant theology for a short paper uh, for this course. Uh, and then it just kind of kept developing. I sort of kept expanding on it past the, the word limits of, of what I was supposed to do in that paper. I was hearing from uh, uh, an advisor uh for looking for PhD students and was asked if I'd be interested in turning this into a paper. I'd been discussing Usher things with him and it seemed like a good idea and exciting uh, opportunity. So that's uh, what we did. And uh, yeah, my, my original plan, I suppose, was talk about Usher's covenant theology, uh, just the broad scope uh, of his, his view of, of how the Christian life relates to covenants uh, how God had made this covenant with Adam, which is what the book ended up focusing on. But then also uh, the, the covenant of grace, God's one plan of, of salvation uh, for all people after the fall. So that was the original plan. And as I got into it, uh, I kept and kept writing about the covenant of works. Uh, not not because uh, I, I sort of liked it more, but because that was what Usher was talking about. The most, uh, which is interesting because so so to, to back up slightly, I guess the reason that I got into to Usher more specifically was I kept reading about the covenant theology of the Westminster Assembly and Usher's name kept coming up. And so I kept, you know, seeing him mentioned as this really important figure for the history of covenant theology and its development in the Reformed tradition and kept trying to find an extended explanation of his covenant theology, especially in terms of the Westminster Assembly and how those two things related. 
Well, that article, that book, uh, turns out it didn't exist. And so, uh, I guess I decided, well, I'll write it. And, uh, so as I was looking at Usher's Covenant theology, specifically with, with thinking about how people had argued already that it has relevance for the Westminster Assembly, uh, he kept talking most about the covenant of works. And so that's what I kind of kept writing on. And eventually, you know, it's like, well, okay, this has turned into more than just one chapter, which was the original idea. This is turned into at least two chapters. Okay. Now that this has spilled into three chapters worth, you know, by word count, you know, you still have to figure out how to divide it up uh, into, to, you know, coherent sections for chapters. But this is a, a, a thesis, a book in itself. And so uh, that's that's the kind of change in direction I ended up taking was just looking at how Usher used the covenant of works and why it was of such extensive uh, importance for him. And in that way, I, I, I would at least like to imagine <laughs> that I haven't read my own position, you know, my, my hypothesis into the sources, because it wasn't my original hypothesis. It was one that grew out of, of reading Usher over and over and reading more and more across his various uh, written and manuscript, public, I guess, published and manuscript sources. So that's kind of the background and even how the original idea shaped into what it is now. The, the book itself is actually, I think, 50. So, so I did start this as a, a PhD thesis, but this book is actually, I think, 50% longer than the thesis. Uh, certainly went through several revisions, incorporated a lot more sources from other things and, and has extensive interaction outside of what the original project was. And thankfully, Oxford was gracious and, and ready to publish it. And that's, now it's out. That's great. And, and we can buy it for Christmas. So, uh, Harrison, tell us a little bit more. Who is Usher and what did covenant theology do for him? So t tell us who Usher is. Tell us what covenant theology is and tell us why it matters to Usher. So broadly speaking, James Usher, I think it's not so controversial to say is is one of the most important theologians in the history of the Church of Ireland uh, and still to this day. So he was a 17th century Archbishop for the Church of Ireland. He was born in 1581, uh, went to Trinity College, Dublin, uh, did his studies there, also became professor there uh, in the early 1600s, did kind of a, a skyrocketing story to, to success in some ways, intellectually and uh, ecclesiastically, too. In the early 1620s, he was uh, moved to become Bishop of Meath uh, by James I. And then in 1625, one of the last things that James I did before he died, actually, was make Usher the Archbishop of Armagh, which is the, the highest uh, position in the Church of Ireland. So he's, he's the primate over the entire established church in Ireland. So that was kind of a, a very brief sketch of his, his life uh, or his career up until he became Archbishop. Uh, and things kept getting more interesting for him. Even after that, though, so so shortly after he became Archbishop, uh, Charles I became the King of, of England uh, and Scotland. And of course, that has uh, relevance for Ireland as well. Uh, then 
uh, especially. And Charles uh, was a guy who wanted to promote the monarchy and sort of a, a totalitarian view of authority in some ways. And he also appointed a guy named William Laud as the Archbishop of Canterbury, the highest position in the Church of England. And there's a back and forth, of course, between the two archbishops and what that authority relationship is like. But one of the things was the more reformed people in in the established churches did not appreciate the pol policies that were coming out under Charles and William Laud because they thought they were at least too ceremonialist, if not uh, fully Roman Catholic uh, in some, at least in their flair. So this grew some tensions among the Reformed and people in the established church, and Usher was right in the thick of this. Usher had very strong sympathies for real, thorough, Reformed theology, uh, and so Laud's policies and, and doctrine, if certainly that the doctrine underlied, underlined his, his policies, um, that didn't mesh well with Usher's views. And so Usher spent a lot of time trying to, to keep the Church of Ireland uh, independent with a, with a small I, uh, lowercase I, not uh, in polity, but separate from the Church of England and under its own confessional heading. So they had the Irish Articles that were set in place in 1615, and Usher wanted to keep these as the Confession of the Church of Ireland in 1633, 34. Uh, the, the 39 Articles of the Church of England were sort of imposed on the Church of Ireland. Uh, so in, in some ways, the I Irish Articles were never rescinded, but in some ways Usher lost that battle to some degree. So that's that's kind of the first half, really, of Usher's career was trying to work for a reformed and distinct Church of Ireland. Uh, the second half of his career, uh, it, it may not half chronologically, but in terms of major parts, in 1640, Usher went to England uh, to for normal church business in, in some ways. Uh, he made these trips fairly regularly and frequently. But this time, while he was in England, the Irish Rebellion broke out, and that prevented him from coming back to Ireland. And so uh, by the time things had settled down and he, he could have returned politically, he was basically too unwell to be able to come back. And so he, he lived the rest of his life uh, and carried out the rest of his career in England. Now, in the early 1640s uh, was when the Civil War was breaking out. And so Usher got tangled up in this as well. So he started preaching. He was doing various research projects going back and forth between Oxford, Cambridge, London. But he started preaching in London at a little place called Covent Garden. And there's records of his basically weekly sermons uh, there for a while uh, in early 1642. When the Civil War broke out and Charles I, uh, Usher, despite his doctrinal differences with Charles and Laud, did think that God appointed the monarch, and so no one has right to oppose that. And so uh, Usher relocated to Oxford, where the royalist camp was, was doing some research there. Uh, it appears that he was giving some theological lectures, which maybe we can come back to uh, later in terms of their significance. But he was doing that for the two years, roughly, that he was there. Uh, ended up back in London um, and uh, preaching again. Uh, for 
until 1653. He died in 1656, so preached until the last three years of his life. Uh, died uh, in Rygate at a big home that's still there. Was buried, uh, I, in some ways, ironically, uh, within the within Westminster Abbey. Um, and and given the the sort of ongoing discussion of his connection to the Westminster Assembly, I find that really fascinating. Uh, because uh, Oliver Cromwell, uh, you know, the, the Lord Protector, uh, was in charge at this point, and Usher was a royalist archbishop, and Oliver Cromwell demanded that he be buried in Westminster Abbey, and he suspended the ban on the Book of Common Prayer so that Usher's uh, funeral could use its liturgy uh, for, for that funeral service. And the Westminster Assembly had started its meetings uh, in the Henry VII Chapel, which is up at the east end of, of Westminster Abbey. And Usher didn't attend the assembly because he was a royalist and had gone to Oxford. And yet he's buried in one of the little chapel areas right at the foot uh, of, of the stairs that go into Henry VII Chapel. And, you know, all right, we can make too much of these things, but it's hard to resist, you know, that uh, just like in life, Usher was just outside the, the room of the Westminster Assembly, so in death, he was just outside where they met too. And I find that at least interesting and fascinating that that's how the story comes to an end. Uh, people have debated his, his legacy essentially since he died. Uh, there were competing stories about which party who really owned Usher, the Puritans, the Anglicans. Uh, since then, you know, the, the evangelicals, uh, of, of sorts, the reformed evangelicals uh, or the high churchmen. Uh, and in really still to this day, there's dispute over to whom Usher truly belongs. So that's kind of a story of who he is. Um, I think there, covenant theology, how was covenant theology important to Usher was the other part of your question. So uh, Usher essentially made extensive use of this doctrine. Uh, and there's a reason for it because covenants are essentially about how God relates to his people. And they are the formal relationships in which he binds himself to his people. Uh, so one, we can think about uh, how this was important to Usher because uh, Usher did not, uh, Usher was a historian in some ways. He was a theologian, but he also loved history. And covenants are historical things. They are things that happened. They are things that God revealed. Uh, to think about God's covenants, aren't to speculate about his decrees. They are to reflect upon what he actually did and said to his people in history. They're also about that relationship. And so these, the structure of these covenants, as God describes them, truly does tell us about how we're meant to relate to God. And so that's why Usher made such extensive use of this. Uh, the Irish articles, which uh, I've argued in a forthcoming publication, he is the at least the primary author, and I think there's real evidence of that. Uh, and there's some of that in this book, too, but more evidence forthcoming. Uh, is the first Reformed Confession uh, to, to make use of the doctrine of the covenant of works, and then that is increased and, and made a, a bit more uh, rounded in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And so Usher does really play a part in bringing covenant theology into the confessional tradition to some degree. So that's a sketch, I think, of his life, his work, and, and how he relates broadly, at least, to covenant theology.
So Harrison, much of the work you're doing for this project is quite new. It's groundbreaking, isn't it? And you explain in the book that you're interested in using manuscript sources alongside the print sources that might be a little bit better known. Tell us a little bit about how you went about using manuscript sources and some of the things you discovered. Yeah. So one of the things about one of the the, the rich blessings that we have doing historic history of the early modern period now is the easy availability of so many sources on the post-Reformation Digital Library, early English books online, Google Books. We can get access to most of the published works from that time. That also means that they certainly become less scarce um, in terms of using them. And so we need to be cutting edge. I think we need to push at least somewhat past that and, and certainly do more than just summarize published works. Uh, that used to, to be very useful. Uh, now, because so many people can get them so easily, we need to at least to do more than summarize them, analyze them, give context, think about them more and more. Think about these and also think about them um, physically. Books, we can download these digitally. Um, that wasn't the case in the 1600s. These books had to travel from where they were published. People had to read them. Um, and that, I mean, especially thinking about Usher in Ireland, which if you think about books published in Europe on the continent, well, they got to travel to Ireland for Usher to use them. So I can't, in working on Usher, I can't just claim, well, you know, this European book was important, so it must have been important to Usher. I need to demonstrate that he had access to this book. And uh, that sort of thinking about the physicality of, of books and, and information distribution in the early modern period really got me thinking hard about method in general and connections and how really uh, every connection that we try to make in historiography needs to be demonstrable. Now, that's difficult because footnotes uh, were essentially non-existent to some degree or other in the early modern period. Sometimes marginal notes record sources, but sometimes they don't. And plagiarism was a far different kind of category back then uh, than it is now by, by a long shot. Uh, but we can still think beyond just, well, did they say it? Now, certainly if they say, I used this book, uh, I leaned on this person's work, that's very helpful. But we can push past that. We can look at personal papers and see uh, did they leave records, uh, you know, in other ways of books they were reading and thinking about? Did they take notes from other books? Uh, did they have letters uh, to other, to and from other theologians and, and thinkers and writers that can tell us, well, they were interacting with them to some, some degree or other. Uh, we can also just check library records. What, and that can be very tedious and very difficult depending on the person and the library and when, when and where this was, but was the book available to, to a person who was studying in this library at that time? Uh, so Usher, Usher is a, a good person to use in that regard because there are good records of the books he owned, uh, of the books that he annotated. Uh, he also made a lot of notes in, in uh, his personal papers about the books he read and that kind of thing. And there's a, a, a brand new, beautiful edition of his letters that tell us not only books that he was reading as he interacts with others about them, but also the theologians uh, that he interacted with them as people. And so we have these demonstrable connections. But then when we think past, 
even some of those things, we think, well, ideas were being disseminated in, in other ways. There is such thing as word of mouth, uh, but we can't guess at that. So it may be lost to us, and that's a shame. But sometimes people write things down. So uh, in the Usher manuscript collection, there's a good, uh, sizable body of auditor's notes uh, that, that record things that Usher said. And so other people writing down his lectures. So, for example, in 1643 to 44, when he was in Oxford, uh, Thomas Barlow, Bishop Thomas Barlow, or the later Bishop of Thomas, uh, Bishop Thomas Barlow, uh, seems to write down some divinity lectures that Usher gave. It, not formal lectures, I think, you know, it was more invite, would you do this for us on the side? But still, we have record of this really exciting set of lectures that would have been lost had it not been for these. The same with his sermons. Lots of people were writing down Usher's sermons uh, and taking extensive notes on what he said and leaving them for us. So this makes you know Usher an exciting field of study if we, if we want to do this demonstrable link kind of thing and not guess about who was interacting with what book and that kind of thing. And even how ideas were spread uh, outside of the, the authorized I, so to speak, of, of being um, censored or not, you know, uh, formally recognized by the publishers and, and that kind of thing. So that's kind of some of the method going into this and why I've prioritized some manuscript sources. I think two of the most exciting ones, so you asked what were some things that I found, uh, two of the most exciting ones, there are lots of exciting ones, uh, the sermon manuscripts and that kind of thing, but two that have been rarely used and one of them has never been used. Uh, the, the 1643 and 44 lectures, uh, have been cited once, but the lectures themselves, so other bits of this manuscript have been cited, but the lectures were given in Latin and they've never been translated, never been published. Uh, and that section has never been cited. So I do a lot with that, seeing what is he teaching divinity students? Uh, and this, so both of these documents, actually, I, I've worked on a translation. Uh, done a critical transcription, but also done an annotated translation. And these should be coming out in an edition uh, with one other manuscript uh, later, hopefully next year, I, I hope. Um, but it's done and should go off to the publisher uh, soon. Uh, and the so it's a to find lectures on reform theology from the Civil War right down the road from Charles I pro tem uh, parliament. Uh, is, is at least a provocative source and an exciting thing to explore. The second one is, I've argued, is a rough draft of the Irish articles in Usher's handwriting. It's been disputed in modern historiography whether the tradition that Usher was the author of the articles was correct. Uh, I think now we have proof. There is, in fact, an account. So they are in Latin, the rough draft, but there's an account by Usher's grandson that uh, the convocation appointed Usher to write the articles in Latin. Uh, and here we have this document where it's in Usher's handwriting. It looks like a confession of faith. It's the same kind of thing. A lot of it is reused in a translated form in the Irish articles in the English final version. Uh, and so I think there's a powerful case to be made that this is what it, what they are. So those are probably two of the more exciting sources uh, that I use. And I think that, I think that covers what you'd ask me there. Um, That's great, Harrison. So could you tell us maybe how all of this comes together in Usher's doctrine of predestination? Yeah. So 
older literature on to to set the context, older literature on covenant theology tried to set uh, the doctrine of predestination and the doctrine of covenant theology in opposition to each other in the Reformed tradition, sort of arguing that there was the the predestinarian stream of Reformed theology, there was the covenantal stream. You know, the, the Geneva School under Calvin focused on God's decree and God's sovereignty and God's predestination. Uh, the, the sort of other school uh, under Bullinger and that kind of uh, person, Busser, Bullinger, uh, focused a bit more on, you know, these historical outworkings of, of what God was doing in his relationship and, and set these as at least intention. Um, that's the background of why this is an important question. Uh, because it, it seems more recent literature has demonstrated these weren't opposing themes. In fact, uh, reformed people all believed that God decreed everything that would come to pass. Uh, but he also made covenants with his people. Uh, and so covenant in the way that Usher, you know, explains it is the outworking of God's decree. So, uh, I have argued at least that Usher leaned a little bit superlapsarian. Uh, I think that uh, some people may object to that, but we'll have to wait to see how that <laughs> falls out under reviews and that kind of, and responses. Uh, but uh, he seemed to think that one of the reasons why God made a covenant with Adam, where there was a probation with this tree of knowledge of good and evil, is so that Adam would fall. He says that that was one of the purposes so there was part of the decree, of course, was that Adam would not pass his probation and that people would come to be saved in Jesus Christ, in the Son of God. Uh, and so the covenant of grace uh, as the as the foil uh, of sorts to the covenant of works is one, is one where uh, God's people don't earn everlasting life in the new creation like Adam could have done in this covenant of works. But in this covenant of grace, Jesus Christ earns everlasting life for them, and they receive it from him by faith alone. Well, that actually brings together a lot of a lot of the Reformed emphases. Uh, salvation by faith alone. Uh, God has been sovereignly at work in predestination, and yet God has been engaged in history by working these things by working out His decree through covenants. So Usher spends a lot of time. Uh, what? Well, yeah, a lot of emphasis and energy emphasizing how covenants are the outworking of God's decree in predestination. That's great, Harrison. Well, listen, we've taken up a lot of your time today uh, talking about this really impressive new book, Catholicity and the Covenant of Works, James Usher and the Reformed Tradition, just published by Oxford University Press. But before we wind up our conversation, could you tell us what you're working on at the moment? Yeah, well, so like I mentioned, the I, I've done an edition of some of Usher's manuscripts uh, that's been accepted for publication uh, and is basically wrapped up, but I hope that people will keep an eye out uh, for that to come out. Uh, I hope soon. Uh, one of the things I'm working, well, also, if if they keep an eye out for the journal, The Confessional Presbyterian, uh, I've transcribed some of Usher's manuscripts there and also have an article on Usher's life and his relationship to the Reformed tradition. Uh, that should be out later this year. Uh, and then I'm I'm doing a a theological book on covenant theology. So the Usher book is a historical treatment. And now I'm trying to do from the perspective of systematic theology, uh, essentially, why should people believe 
uh, the covenant of works, covenant of grace, and covenant of redemption. So that's the next big thing. I'm about seven chapters uh, in. I think it'll be uh, 11 or 12 chapters, and I'm hoping to propose that to a publisher soon uh, now that I have a rounded idea. Um, but that's the that's the major stuff that I'm working on at the moment. Well, that sounds great, Harrison. Hopefully at some point we'll have you back on the show to talk about some of those projects. I'd love to come back. It's been a delight to be with you. Well, thanks for your time and take care. Thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.